All right. Hey, good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us on this Easter Sunday. Uh, thank you uh, for uh, for just yeah, just your being here as an encouragement, and uh, I'm excited to have the honor to worship alongside you. Yesterday, I read a uh, an interesting, uh, not an interesting, a concerning, a, a heartbreaking interview in the New York Times. Um, the interview was with a woman na- by the name of Serene Jones, and she is the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York. And the the journalist for the New York Times uh, asked her this question: <clears throat> Isn't a Christianity without a physical resurrection less powerful and awesome? When the message is, is about love, that's less religion, more philosophy. And this was Miss Jones' answer to the question. For me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. And that's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession, that seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? Would that mean that Christianity was a lie? I want to uh, declare here today that the answer to that question that Miss Jones is very confused about is unequivocally yes. That's exactly what that would mean. That if Jesus is dead and in the tomb, if Jesus did not overcome death, if the resurrection is not so, then I'm out. Okay, like I've, I'm out. Like I've given my, my, all of my life to, to, to the Father. And if, if Jesus is dead in the tomb, then he's not God. And so the, I, I want to declare that this morning because we we're, st- we're going to be reading from the book of Galatians. And the author of Galatians holds a similar stance that he also would not concur with Miss Jones' assumption. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, he declares this to the church in Corinth. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then going in verse 14 of that same address to the church in Corinth, Paul says this declaratively, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We celebrate today, we make a big deal out of Easter because all of our faith is built around the truth that death did not defeat Christ, but that Christ being fully God overcame death and that he came out of the tomb on that Easter Sunday. On Friday, a thief. On Friday, he bore the weight of our sins and the price that we should have paid. But on Sunday, the check cleared. It was paid on Friday, but it cleared on Sunday. On Sunday, a king we believe that, and we believe that all of the that the truth of the gospel is built around that essential truth of Easter Sunday. So this morning, I'm going to do something a little unique. 
Typically, uh, we identify a section of Scripture, and we simply walk through that one section of Scripture. Um, Today, we're going to look at two sections of Scripture, and we're going to interchange those. We've been studying the book of Galatians, and we're going to continue that this morning. Uh, We're going to be in Galatians 5, uh, verses 1 through uh, 15. And uh, we're going to, the title in your Bible of that likely is, Christ has set us free. And so we're going to discuss our freedom in Christ But in the midst of that, we're also going to intertwine John chapter 20 and the resurrection story. Then we're going to do that for this reason. We tend to think of Easter, the Easter message. It's something we do every year. You know, I don't know about you guys. I watched the Ten, you know, we had Ten Commandments on last night. Okay, we're here. There's this whole ritual and the Easter story is an Easter story. But the Easter story isn't just a holiday story. It's the it's every day, every Sunday story. It's the gospel to which we hold. And so today, in Galatians 5, Paul is addressing the church in Galatia. The church, now, if you haven't been with us, the church in Galatia, uh, the, Paul planted this network of churches, and they've begun to buy into some legalism. So shortly after he left, the church began to be convinced by legalistic believers that the gospel was Jesus plus obedience to the law, that if they wanted to be saved, it wasn't just grace, but they also had to follow all the rules of the law. And Paul is just destroyed by this, because that's not what he preached at all. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Our obedience to the law is birthed out of Christ's love for us. It's not an attempt to earn Christ's love for us. And so today in 5, he's kind of going to recap a lot of what he's already said to the church But I want you to understand today that the power of Galatians 5 is made true because of the empty tomb, because of the truth of John chapter 20. And so this morning, uh, we're going to walk through both of these. I am going to, uh, we're going to start in Galatians 5 verse 1. Uh, I am going to read that and then I'm going to pray for our time. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Father, thank you for this day. And uh, Father, thank you for the empty tomb. Uh, Lord, we are, uh, we, we are not here to be some uh, part of some club. Uh, Lord, this is, would this not just be a holiday tradition for us, but would we be a people who are here because you're worthy of our lives, Lord? Lord, you are worthy of our lives. You're worthy of every ounce of our being. You're worthy of uh, just a total adoration and dependence. And Lord, I pray that you would, would call us to that today. Lord, I pray you would call sinners to repentance. I pray you would call your children to trust in you. Lord, would you do that? I can't do that, Lord, but you can. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would that you would move in your people, and that you would draw us to yourself by the power of your word this morning. I pray these things in your good name. Amen. Paul says here in Galatians 5, verse 1, as he's just reiterating what he's been teaching to the churches in Galatia, he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Because he wants them to understand, like, you were slaves. You've been made free through the gospel. Like, the church in Galatia is returning to the very things that used to be slavery to them. He says, you've been made free from that. You've been given the righteousness of Christ, but through Christ and Christ alone. That the gospel is the good news that God gave his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there wouldn't no longer be condemnation for those that are his, but everlasting joy with him. The church has been, the God's people have been set free, yet they're returning to slavery. And he wants them to, re- to remind them that you now have freedom in the gospel 
And you should stand firm in that. Don't return to the things that used to enslave you. Today, we celebrate that our freedom was found in the empty tomb. That the very freedom he declares to the church that they have, they have because the tomb is empty. Because Jesus overcame death and the very death and sin that used to enslave people ultimately has been was defeated when the tomb was empty. And so Paul's very message is made true only because of the truth that we celebrate today. We see that truth recapped in uh, John chapter 20. We see Peter and Jesus along with Mary as they have their first encounter at the empty grave. What had happened was in John 20, uh, Mary, who is just distraught and she wants to get to the tomb, she wants to it's a, she, she wants to pay her respects to Jesus. She gets to the tomb and discovers that the stone has been rolled away. And Mary is distraught. Like any number of terrible things could have happened. She is not thinking in that moment, Jesus is alive. She's thinking in that moment, something terrible has happened. What have they done with him? And, you know, the, the, even though Mary is very confused at this point, she knows that she loved her teacher. And she's distraught that something has obviously happened. And so in her distress, she runs to Peter and John. And she tells them, he's gone. And so Peter and John run to the tomb, and uh, we see that they both get there, and Peter goes in first, and starting in John chapter 20, verse 6, this is what it says about that encounter. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linens lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Okay, I want, I want to just clarify for a minute what it is that Peter encountered there with Mary and John. They go into the tomb, and Jesus' body had been prepared for burial. Okay, this was a, this was a significant procedure. Like, he would have been wrapped tightly in these thick linen cloths, and then ultimately, as much as 75 to 100 pounds of spices would have been used to ultimately paste this together and to preserve this. So, like, imagine the equivalent of you somebody being laid on a table and, and wrapped up in duct tape, okay? And they walk in, and not only is it not, like, shredded, okay, but it's just laying there nicely, and the cloth that was on his face is laying up folded in the corner. The, the cloths weren't torn. So that means that, like, even if Jesus had just had some, like, incredible Hulk moment and just ripped it up, like, that's not what happened. He obviously just passed through the cloths. And then the face cloth that would have been meant to cover his face, it's not just, like, on the floor. It's folded up very meticulously in its place in the corner of the tomb. Not only did Jesus obviously pass through the cloths, but he took a moment in the tomb and just a moment of divine calmness. He like cleaned up the place. He doesn't wake up in the tomb like freaking out, buried alive. There's obviously an intentionality, a calmness. Like he, like he, he's cleaning up in there. The Westcott commentary says, there are no traces of haste. The deserted tomb bore the marks of perfect calmness. The royal calmness of Jesus throughout his life is hinted at here in the resurrection. In the tomb, God's plan for redeeming his children went forth as he had planned from the beginning. Jesus didn't awake in haste. Like, this was the fulfillment of the plan that always was. Christ would taste death so that we might be free. But death would never hold him. 
death would die to him. And thus, what Paul is declaring to the church in Galatia, death would no longer rule over us because death died to Christ in the tomb as he knew that it would. Why? Why? I just want to input, like, why is the condition of his linen so significant? And part of the reason is because we've seen the very opposite picture. In John chapter 11, we see that Lazarus dies. And Jesus is, is broken by that. It says Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible. And uh, ultimately, Jesus calls Lazarus back to life. Jesus, Like Jesus, Lazarus is dead. He, he's wrapped in the linens and he's put in the tomb. But the encounter is very different. Listen to this. John 11, 43 through 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. People had to help Lazarus out of the linens. Like, Lazarus is, like, doing his best potato sack impression here, like, freaking out, trying to get out of the tomb, and people had to help him. Like, Jesus has to command these guys, go help him. There's no way he could get out of that on his own. And I'm sure, you know, the inevitable, you know, masculinity test question came up, like, who has a pocket knife? Somebody's got to cut him out of these things. And it's because Lazarus was given life again, but he, he arose to a mortal body. Lazarus would one day die again, and that time would be permanent (laughs) until Christ would raise him ultimately with his people. After the resurrection, Christ did not have a mortal body. It wasn't the same as Lazarus. Christ was like death no longer held him. He would not face death again. In the tomb, Christ was raised and was as he is, no longer in the flesh, but fully God fully without the weight of the flesh holding him down. Romans 6, 9 says, we know that Christ has been raised from the dead and will never die again. Jesus' body was different. He simply passed through those grave clothes the way that he passed through the doors in John 20, verse 26. In that verse, it says, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. When Jesus rose, he rose in his perfect natural state. John Piper says this about this text. If you think this does not matter to you, remember those who are in Christ, that is, who believe on him and belong to him and receive forgiveness and reconciliation from him, we will be raised with him. And Paul says in Philippians 3.21 that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If you belong to To him, by faith in him, you will receive a body like his, which will be perfectly suited to see him and enjoy him and enter finally into the new heavens and the new earth, where you will get to spend eternity admiring God and all that he has made. And this world that we love so much will be like a candle compared to the sun on that day. Okay, like for those who are his, the picture, like we, we don't, we're not, we're, we're not, we don't await the, the Lazarus re- resurrection. We await a resurrection like Christ's, a resurrection into the kingdom made new. Because Jesus defeated death, we await a resurrection like his. We're no longer slaves, is what Paul continues to beat into the church in Galatia. We're heirs to the kingdom of God. 
We've been, we're, we're adopted sons and daughters who await a resurrection into a world made new. Therefore, Paul, going back to the, the verse 1 in Galatians 5, we have reason to stand firm. Not settling for slavery, but living as heirs here and now is a reflection of the kingdom and as a testimony to the gospel by which we are freed. And Paul said to the church in Corinth, and are being saved. This time here in this place, we're meant to live out of our status as adopted sons and daughters here and now, knowing that this time here is preparing us for the day that we will stay and we will live eternally in the kingdom to come. This is never meant to be our home. This was never meant to be the place that we cling to with all of our might and strength. We live here now as a reflection of what will one day be. And we get so, we, we like Paul is, is wrestling with the church that can get so distracted by the here and now. That the things of this world can just overcome them and become where they put all of their time and energy to. And then all of a sudden their, their faith becomes just something they do once a year or something they check off a box every once in a while. Paul's saying, if you are in Christ, that's not so. This whole world is just leading up to our awaiting of home. The home that will one day be. And so he tells him, like, stand firm in that. Don't, and his warning to them is like, don't go back to a yoke of slavery, but live out of your identity as the beloved sons and daughters of the king. Believing your fulfillment, identity, or salvation comes from any place other than the cross and the empty tomb means that you're submitting to a yoke of slavery. Salvation does not come from your good works. It does not come from pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It does not come by just living a good moral life as best you can. As best you can. It comes from the cross of Christ. If you are under the delusion that just living a good life and being as good, a good old boy as much as you can be is sufficient in the eyes of a perfectly holy king, my friend, you are sadly mistaken today. That is not the case. Your goodness is not good enough. Your goodness can never measure up to perfect holiness, but Christ's could. And so he gives that to, as a gift to those who would cling to him for their salvation. Your job, Christian, is not who you are. It's not your identity. Being an heir to the kingdom is. Like, if you believe that who you are is primarily whatever title sits on your desk and not primarily who you are in Christ, then you are sadly mistaken. And you are living as a slave here in this place. And you are missing out on all that God has for you. You are not first and foremost a mom or dad or husband or wife. You are first and foremost a disciple of Jesus above all else. And whatever that role is, like it's a blessing to be any of those things I just mentioned. But if those things come before being a disciple of Jesus, you can't do those things well. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You can't do those things well if they are not birthed out of, first and foremost, your identity as a disciple of Jesus. When you don't attend a church like, like a club, you are the church if you're in Christ. And you should value it as such that, that Christ calls the church his bride. That like, Christ calls the church his bride. To be his is to value it as such. Paul wants the, the church to, to, to feel this and to see this, who they've been made because of the empty tomb. He goes on, uh, looking at verses 2 through 6, there in Galatians 5. Look, I, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, 
Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts, accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, what Paul's saying to the church. So the church, their their sin of choice at this point is legalism. Okay, and so they have been convinced that ultimately circumcision or uncircumcision, which was a mark of those who were his in the Old Testament, they've become convinced that their salvation is really dependent on that. And Paul's told them, like, that was was pre-empty tomb. We are now post-empty tomb. The price has been paid. That circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter. Only Christ and his blood alone. And so he says, like, if you are going to believe that your salvation becomes, is, comes through your moral life, your obedience to the law, if, like, if that's enough, if that's the means by which you will be saved, then he says Christ is of no advantage to you. He says, I testify to you that every man who accepts circumcision, circumcision representing really obedience to the law, kind of that cultural Christianity mentality that if I just live a good life, it'll be good enough. He's saying, if you believe that, then you are obligated to do it perfectly. He says, if you accept circumcision, if you accept that as your means of access to Jesus, then you're obligated to keep the whole law. Because the Old Testament tells us that like perfect holiness before God is like God demands perfect holiness. He's perfectly loving, but he's also perfectly holy and he's perfectly just. And to stand before him, we must stand as those who are clean and perfect. You have two choices. You get to do that on your own in which you better do it all the way. And you can't. Or you have that access because of the empty tomb. Salvation is found either in the empty tomb or by your own merit. But if it's the latter, it better be perfect. And I promise you it's not and will never be. If you depend on the law... Paul goes as far as to say, you're severed from grace. You've fallen from grace. In James Boise's commentary on this term, you are severed from grace. He says, this phrase does not mean that if a Christian sins, he falls from grace and therefore loses his salvation. There's a sense sense in which to sin really is to fall into grace. Like if I'm repentant, if I am repentant, then like my sin points me to Jesus. But to fall from grace, as seen in this context, is to fall into legalism. Or to put it another way, to choose legalism is to relinquish grace as the principle by which one desires to be connected to God. So when he says this, when he says in this verse that you who have fallen away from grace, he's not just talking about those who have committed sins. Like, when, if we're in Christ, then our, our sin, like Christ, Christ has bore the weight of that. That leans us, pu- pu- pushes us into him. But he's saying, those of you who have decided that you don't need grace, that you just need a moral life, if that's you, then you're severed from grace. You better just do this really well because you're saying this is God. You're saying that the death of Christ was not needed for you, that you've got it on your own. To be a people of grace is to live as those who awaits the kingdom. And this, he says in this verse, Paul has two phrases, one in verse five and one in verse six. He says, we ourselves eagerly wait 
And we have faith working through love. So I just want to talk about those for a minute. We live as those who are eagerly waiting. In John 20, verses 10 through 17, going back to the Easter story, this is where it picks up. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So they've gone to they've, they've gone to the grave. It's empty. They see the linens, and they might have thought that was weird, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand what had just happened. So the disciples went back to their homes, and Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I want to be clear about a couple things in this instance. The use of, of the, ver- the verbiage in this language, the use of the present tense hapto in this context means that he's not forbidding her to touch him, but he's telling her essentially to stop what she's already doing. So we can, uh, the, the NIV uses the term holding on to him as opposed to touching him, and I think that's probably more accurate. Mary sees Jesus and she's just clinging to him. She, she doesn't want, she wants to assure himself that, she, that he's real and she surely doesn't want him to leave again. In this case, Jesus lets her know that she must not try to restrict him for he has not yet ascended to the Father. Jesus is telling Mary that he's still on the move. And he also sets Mary in motion to take this good news to the disciples. She had just found him and now she's sent away, but she's sent away with an intentional message. The message that she is given, we can easily glance over, but its significance is priceless. It tells us a great deal about the new phase that had begun in the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the disciples. Indication of change begins with the commission Jesus gives them when he says, Go instead to my brothers. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that the disciples are ever referred to as brothers. Everything had changed now that the tomb was empty. Freedom. They're no longer just disciples. They're no longer slaves to to sin and death. They are free in Christ. They are now heirs to the kingdom of God. He says to them, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Everything changed at the empty tomb. The disciples are now his brothers. We are now brought near. We're now family. The Alfred commentary says, this implies not only that Jesus has not put off his humanity in his resurrected state, but that he has inaugurated a new level of intimacy between himself and his disciples. The new community he founded during his ministry became a family at the cross and the empty tomb. 
And now the disciples are to enter into this new form of relationship as heirs, as free men and women. And this is why Paul is so distraught with the church in Galatia and their confusion. Because the significance of the empty tomb, guys. You're not slaves to the ways of the world. You're not slaves to material things. You're not slaves to lust or greed or all the things you devote your life to. You've been made heirs to the kingdom. And Paul just... Paul, Paul is one who had been rescued from all of this, whose eyes had been opened to the kingdom, is just appalled at this. And it's not appalled in a judgment sense. It's, a, it's being appalled because of the love that he has for those who are his. The message that Mary is given is to give to them. It's not that I raised from the dead. You would think that would be the news he wants her to take to the disciples. That seems like a pretty good headline. But instead, he tells her, go and tell them that I'm going to the Father. Like, like that's the news she wants him. Jesus was dead, and now he's alive. And he doesn't tell Mary, go let them know, I'm okay. He says, go tell the disciples, I'm going to the Father. Again, the calmness of Jesus, that this was the plan God put forth at the beginning of time to happen at the perfect time. He doesn't focus on himself, but ultimately, he focuses on his relation to the Father, The Father is his center of reference, and to return to him is Christ's greatest joy. And therefore, he's paving the way for that to be the greatest joy of all who claim to be his disciples. This is why in Galatians, verse 6, Paul wants the church to understand that their access to the Father is granted through Christ. Obedience to the law was simply a placeholder in the Old Testament. It was meant to be an aid until the Spirit would come and dwell in the hearts of believers. And now the Spirit, by faith, points us to something different. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. And in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working in love. We are a family of missionary disciples. That's how we identify ourselves as a church. And there is a reason we believe that it must be all three of those words. We are made family by the cross of Christ. We're adopted sons and daughters of the king. We are missionaries. We're not merely meant to just revel in that. Not now. On this side of eternity, we're meant to do something with that truth. We're called to be missionaries uh, in the places where God has put us. And we are disciples who are called to grow in our faith. True missionaries must be deeply devoted disciples. This is what it means, faith working through love. In James 2, 19 through 20, James gives this, uh, just uh, makes a startling statement to the church. He says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Paul's making the point, he, like, the church in Galatia is not saved by their works. But faith in Jesus that is true, that is consuming, that consumes my heart, that leads me to a place of dependence on him, is always going to result in fruit. Like, if I have been, my heart has been transformed by Jesus, then it's going to reflect Jesus in the way that I live. And that takes time, and all of our life is the process of growing more in that. But Paul wants them to know that faith working through love is ultimately evidence of the believer. 
Do you have faith? Do you believe that God is God? That's great. But James tells us, like, even the demons believe that. Satan's very aware that God is God. But if your faith doesn't work, then it's not real faith. Like, there's a difference between head knowledge and faith in Christ, submitting all of my life before him, seeking him, depending on him. Faith that is merely belief is not enough. Matthew, uh, Matthew 28, we see the, the terrible, just... Uh, absolutely terrifying statement that Jesus makes. He says, "Those are, there are some who have preached in my name, cast out demons in my name, and will stand before me and I'll say, I, I never knew you. You did all these things. You were motivated for something, but you were never mine. Your salvation was never dependent on me. And he's speaking about these very people who live, the, accept this cultural Christianity, but who at the end of the day, like they're not Christ's. Their life is in no way surrendered to him. He's saying, like, even the demons have a general knowledge that God is God. Saving faith results not only in head knowledge, but a changed heart, a changed mind. Complete dependence, complete surrender. But he also says your love alone isn't enough. Your love must also have faith and abiding trust in Jesus and what he did for us. Works that do not flow from a transformed heart are not works that are intended for the glory of God. And God is worthy of his glory. Faith must work through love. Herod had faith that John the Baptist was a prophet. He acknowledges that. He believes that. But he ultimately had John murdered. Like, he had a a head knowledge and understanding, but he wasn't transformed. He didn't have a transformed heart. He he, he, He didn't depend on Jesus. Because at the end of the day, like the rich young ruler who sees Jesus and is intrigued by him and wants to follow him, the call to give up his life to follow him? No, never mind. Wrong guy. I, I must be in the wrong place. Many of us, we, we live in a culture where many people believe God's God, but the call to die to self, the call to give all of yourself, put it all before the Father, to live lives of surrender to him, to cast, to leave your boats, to walk away from your boats and follow him and him alone, that's something our culture just can't do. And so we would be far more appeased to just play church on Sunday. And that's not what the Father calls us to. That is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. This is a terrible club. Like, this is a club. If this is a club, it's a club, like, you could, today's a beautiful day. You could be playing golf. You could be fishing. You could do any number of fun things. If this is merely a club, why would you want to be a part of it? But if Christ is real, then he's worthy of all of our lives and all of our good days and everything about us. Then all that we have is his. Then we can live in this life experiencing nothing but pain and hardship, trusting and knowing that ultimately we're awaiting the kingdom to come. Those, my friend, are two totally different things, and they confuse our culture a great deal. If you claim to have faith in the gospel and your life in no way reflects the gospel, then you should be concerned. You should repent and should prayerfully seek Jesus with every ounce of your being. Paul goes on in verse 7 and says this. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, 
the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Summarizing that text, we are easily distracted when we trust things other than Jesus for our salvation. We are misled and our mission is hindered when we believe that to be true. A little false gospel goes a long way. If I believe, you know, it says out here on this Jesus plus nothing, if I put anything in that nothing place, even though it might seem little, he's saying a little leaven goes a long way. That ultimately, that little thing that we put before Jesus, even just for a time, has a great effect on our soul. We're misled and our mission is hindered. And that little thing that we just put before Jesus for a moment can ultimately take hold and consume all of our lives. On the positive note, Paul trusts that the church will repent and turn back to the gospel by which they are saved. And this is not going to be the only time. The reason we meet every week and the word is declared every week is because every week we have to be told, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Like We're going to constantly wrestle with this. And so Paul tells the church, I trust that you, if you're God's, if you are Christ's, You're going to hear what I'm saying. You're going to repent and you're going to turn from your ways because his children will always return to him. If you are in Christ, if you have seen the glory of the Father, you'll never ultimately be satisfied in anything else. And you'll always turn back. And Paul makes clear that he no longer preaches circumcision. He tells them, like, that's who I used to be, but I don't anymore, which is why I'm persecuted. He's like, if I still preach circumcision, if I still preached that that ultimately your righteousness could be uh, claimed on your own, then I wouldn't be getting beat up and stoned and shipwrecked and thrown in jail. But the truth, he's saying, he's acknowledging to them, the gospel's offensive. It's the offense of the gospel. My friends, the gospel is offensive. And uh, And too often the church wants to hide from that. We want to cover that up. We want to take away the offense of the gospel because then people will be happy and they'll come. But the gospel is offensive because the gospel says it's not about you. And the gospel says that it's not about you at all. That it's not about you, that your righteousness isn't enough. The gospel says as good as you think you are, you're not. But Jesus is. The gospel is all about him. It's not about you, which is super offensive. And if you're not in Christ, if Christ hasn't taken a hold of you, You don't want to hear that. And who would want to hear that? I don't blame you. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the world is offended by our message because Paul declares that's going to be so. And if like you're going to be tested in that. Do you believe this or not? Does your life reflect this or not? Those teaching this false gospel, he says, will bear a penalty. He wishes they would emasculate themselves. Okay, I'm not going to go in to uh, the details of that, but he's playing off the whole circumcision thing, saying, I, you know, I, I wish, like, you can hear the fear. Let's just, let's just acknowledge there's absolute fury in his voice towards those who would lead God's people away from Jesus. And while that sounds, um, while that sounds isolated, we see a similar fury in Jesus himself. When Jesus calls the little children to come to him, he warns the crowd that anybody who would lead one of these children away from me, it would be better that a millstone was placed around their neck and they were thrown in the depths of the sea. Christ is perfectly loving, but he's perfectly just. And he's worthy of his glory. And those who point people, those who work hard to turn people's head away from him and to point them to something else, 
His language is pretty furious. Because the Lord is worthy of his glory, the empty tomb is worthy of our celebration. Our works are not. Our works lead us away. As we uh, look at the end of this section here in uh, Galatians, he says this in verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He just ends this address by reminding them, like, you are called the freedom family. That is what we celebrate on each Lord's Day. Your freedom was not meant for legalism or license. Too often, our, we, we, the, the truth of the gospel, uh, ultimately, if, if, our, if, our, if we are not rooted in Christ, then we tend to drift towards two distortions of the gospel. Either legalism, which is what's seen here in Galatia. Like they're, they're leaning towards this idea that if we follow all the rules, we could earn our own righteousness. The opposite of that is license. For some, the, the gospel leads us to feel, well, Christ has died for our sins, so we can just live however we want. We don't have to try to be like him at all. And those two perversions of the gospel are at odds with one another in our culture. Much of the problem in our culture and the fight we see in our culture is these two distortions of the gospel that are just fighting with one another. Your freedom wasn't meant for either of those, but to result in love for one another. Ultimately, he's saying to be the church, that the church is God's people loving one another as family, living out the mission of God. The law is fulfilled, was fulfilled in the empty tomb. And we live and love our neighbors as a reflection of Christ. The attitude of, uh, this attitude of service towards one another, he says, fulfills the greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it keeps us from destroying ourselves through strife. He says, beware lest you be consumed by one another. It's as if Paul turns his head back to the legalists again and said, you want to keep the law? You want, you want a rule to keep? I'll give you a rule to keep. You have one. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you have fulfilled the law in one word. This is what Christ asks of us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On this verse, Martin Luther said, If you want to know how you ought to love your neighbor, ask yourself, how much do you love yourself? If you were to get into trouble or danger... You would be glad to have the love and help of all men. You don't need any book of instructions to teach you how to love your neighbor. All you have to do is look into your own heart, and it will tell you how you ought to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The opposite of this heart, he says, is to bite and devour one another. If you want to witness this, put two selfish people together, and selfish, two selfish people will ultimately consume one another. Selfish people, like, it hurts the church. Like, selfishness hurts the church, but the opposite of that is to be a transformed people who love one another as a reflection of Christ's love for us. And we're going about the last verse we're going to look at, verse 18 in John 20. It's a short, short verse. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Mary is changed because the gospel played out in front of her eyes. 
Jesus had previously healed her physically, as many as seven demons within her, but now he's rescued her by defeating death, by doing what he promised he would do. Christian, I have seen the Lord is eternally different than I go to church, than I'm in a cool Bible study, than I try to be a good person, than I vote Republican, than I vote Democrat, than I'm a good Baptist, that I'm a good American, I'm a good Christian. We're called much more than any of those things. We're called to live as a people who I have seen the Lord. Okay, like our allegiance is, is ultimately to the kingdom. We're called to much more. We weren't meant to be content in this world. We weren't meant to worship this world. So stop trying to. But seek Jesus and Christ alone. Find your comfort on the cross where your freedom was paid for. And in the, in the empty tomb where the check cleared. That's Paul's message to the church in Galatia. He wants to remind them of who they are in Christ. Stop trying to worship something else. Like stop building golden calves. Turn back to Jesus and keep your gaze on him. And then love one another and help one another to keep your gaze on Jesus. Even when it's really hard, it's worth it. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. The man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. Today we acknowledge that, we celebrate that, but not just today, every day. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that on Friday he was a thief, but on Sunday he's a king. On Friday the debt was paid, on Sunday the check cleared. And we are called to live as a reflection of such. And we will struggle and we will fail sometimes. But we will get up and we will continue marching forward until the day he calls us home. And we weren't meant to do that alone. We're the church because he called us to do that together. That if we, if we love him, we love his bride, and, and we recognize that he wants what's good for us. And so we come here together today as a room full of sinners and broken people, a room full of nobodies who are trying to tell everybody about somebody. Because that somebody is all that they need, and it's all that we need. Would that be true in our hearts today? Will you pray with me? Jesus, I love you. And uh, I know that you're all I need. I confess my heart doesn't always reflect that. I thank you for conviction. I thank you that, uh, that you don't leave me in my own ways, but you uh, convict me, you discipline me, and you point me back to you. God, would I, uh, would we, uh, would we desire your discipline and your reproof? Father, don't let us be prideful. Remove our pride. Holy Spirit, if you have to do it, uh, Lord, you, you you removed Paul's pride. <laughs> Lord, you, you, you removed his pride in a, a forceful way. If you must do the same for us, Lord, would you do that? Lord, would we have eyes to see as you see? Lord, would you call us to repentance? Lord, if there are people in this room who, who need to repent of a life focused on self, Lord, would you lovingly, graciously, but forcefully call them to repentance and do whatever you have to do to get their attention? Lord, whatever it would be. Death is sweeter, Lord, we know, than a life lived for self. I pray, Lord, our lives would reflect that, that our lives would reflect, we would be a people who eagerly await your coming, who eagerly await the, the, 
the perfect the kingdom to come. Lord, help us to live here and now in a way that reflects the place that we know uh, we will one day be. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to do that so that our community might know you, might know where hope is found. Lord, I love you, and uh, I pray these things in your good name. Amen.